You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. So, before we welcome Pastor Jonathan up, will you join me in standing for a reading of God's Word? Today's scripture comes from Titus chapter 3, 8 through 15. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me and Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. You know, one of the things that uh, my wife and I love the most about living in Louisville is, as some of you know about us, we love our professional soccer team, Lou City. Any fans here? Maybe some of you. Some of you know if you've uh, that my wife and I have been faithfully attending for many years. We're season ticket holders. And if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I basically, I don't post very often, but it's almost always the same picture of us sitting there uh, at the game, often even in my full purple suit that I wear to the games. Now, I have to admit that while my wife and I both love to go to the game, sometimes I do embarrass her a bit, not with the purple suit, she's all about that, but because something honestly comes over me at Lou City matches and my normal, self-controlled, peaceable manner leaves my body and somehow I become this rabid fan and I'm booing, yelling, taunting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. So it's like my lizard brain kicks in and something happens to me when I'm at a soccer game. Now, the question is, why does soccer, or as the rest of the world calls it, football, why does it do that to me? I mean, other sports don't make me feel that way. And as you may know, this sort of super passion for soccer or football is one shared by millions and millions of people all over the world. The sport seems to bring out some of the greatest passions of all people. What is it about football or soccer that brings out this great passion? Well, I believe that this passion for the game is directly related to the beauty of the game. A jogo bonito, as the, as the Brazilian Portuguese translation of it is, the beautiful game. There is simply something about the beauty of a football match that is always changing. You never know what's going to happen. It's always unpredictable. And then when they're coming down the field, all of a sudden, somebody dribbles past another one, passes this perfect pass. The other guy volleys it in, corner of the goal. He's going by, goal. I mean, there is something like that that is nothing else. It's beautiful and it's good. And this is what beauty does. Something that is beautiful 
takes our breath away. It catches us up into its wonder. It frees us from whatever else is going on in our lives, stresses, anxieties, disappointments, frustrations. When we encounter beauty, it evokes in us. It gives us this freedom to to praise and to be in awe and to clap and to hoot and holler and to enter into joy. When we experience something beautiful, we know without even thinking that it is good. And maybe for you, it's not soccer. There's still time to repent. But you know what I mean when whatever it is for you that makes you experience the powerful goodness of beauty, maybe it's hiking towards majestic mountains and you turn the trail in the corner and you see this beautiful valley with the sun streaming through and the birds chirping and the, and the, the sun glistening off the water. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just the joy and the beauty of, of seeing a smile, a wholehearted smile on a child's face when you bless them with their heart's desire. Maybe it's the beauty of seeing someone in need and seeing someone else help them, whether it's just giving up a seat on a bus or Mother Teresa or all the way up to somebody like Oskar Schindler who you know, rescued 1,200 Jewish people in, in Nazi Poland by protecting them. It's beautiful. Our family has been watching, uh, re-watching actually the show on Apple TV, Ted Lasso. It's again about soccer, but it is, it is a character. Ted Lasso is a character who is both good and beautiful. In every episode, we just stand in awe of it or sit in awe of it and think, I want to be a better person. This is the power of goodness and beauty. We may not always be able to articulate what's going on when we experience goodness and beauty, but we know it. Well, today... We are finishing up our five-week series in this letter called Titus, and it's a little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of his disciples, a young pastor named Titus, and it's actually part of a collection of three letters we have in the New Testament, two that were written to another young disciple of Paul's, a guy named Timothy, and these three letters together we call, therefore, the Pastoral Epistles. And we've called this series in Titus, This Beautiful Church, because Even though the letter to Titus is very short, it really contains a grand vision for what God is doing in forming a people for himself through Christ that is the church. And as we wrap up this series today, we're just going to be looking at those final words from chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. And I've entitled this sermon, The Beauty of Goodness, because I think we're going to see that it all comes down to this issue of what is good and how to do and be involved in goodness. And so we're going to see an invitation to goodness, the opposite of goodness, and then the practice of goodness. So let's just jump right into it. If you have a Bible, you can look there with me. We'll put the verses on the screen as well. First, an invitation to goodness. Now, I've been studying this text all week, you can imagine, but yesterday I just sat down, which is always a good thing to do, and just said, okay, I've read all the commentaries, I've thought about what I want to say about it, I'm just going to read the whole letter of Titus again. It just takes a few minutes to do, it's a very short letter, and I was struck by just reading it through in one sitting, how the whole letter really makes sense if you think of it as an invitation to goodness. It's really what the whole letter is about. In fact, if you were here back not too many weeks ago when we were in chapter one, we had a description of what a beautiful and good leader looks like in the church, and really all the characteristics could be summed up as someone who is genuinely good, and in fact, one of them is the 
the word philagathos, which means a lover of what is good. I thought that'd be a pretty cool t-shirt, philagathos, right? A lover of what is good. And as I was thinking about that word, I, I couldn't help but think of J.K. Rowling's brilliant character, uh, Xenophilius Lovegood, which if you don't know what that name means, Xenophilius means, you heard Phil, that filio word in there, it means a lover of strangers or a friend to strangers and one who loves to do good. What a, what a great name. And this is basically what Titus 1 describes as well, as someone who is good and someone who loves good. And then that invitation to loving and doing and being good continues really through all of the pastoral epistles, not just Titus. There's a couple of different words that get translated as good, and they're used 35 times just in First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's, a, it's really the major theme of the book. Here's the question. Why is Paul talking so much about goodness? And, and where does he get this idea of goodness? It's not maybe something you and I think a lot about. Well, it really goes back to the very foundation of the Bible itself, the book of Genesis, really the foundation of creation itself. In fact, if I, if I were to ask you this morning, how do you think God views the world? I'd ask you that. How do you think God views the world? What would your answer be? What's God's view of humanity? What would your answer view? I think a lot of us would probably say sinful, broken, rebellious, something like that. Well, we actually don't have to wonder what God thinks about creation and humanity in its very essence, at its very core, its primary characteristic. The answer is in the very first chapter of the Bible. And the answer is good. If you turn back to Genesis 1 and read the creation account, the very first chapter of the Bible, the, the depiction of what happened at the beginning when God spoke creation to existence, six times in a row after he creates something, he says it was good. And do you know what he says at the very end, after he's created all of his creation, what does he say? The seventh time then he says, it is very good. Now, we may say, well, obviously, there's so much evil in the world and natural disasters and tsunamis and cancers and evil people and brokenness. Nature is red and tooth and claws, we say. Yes, that's true. And the Bible is clear about how that came to be and what the solution to it is. But we've got to understand, friends, that from a true biblical understanding, good and evil are not equal. Good and bad are not opposite created things. They're not foundational to creation. Everything that God has created is good. There is no created evil. Evil and bad do not exist at the same level, at the same primary way in which good does. That's yin and yang. That's Eastern religions. That is not biblical religion. Everything that God made is good. So what is evil? What is bad? It's always a privation and a perversion of what is good. But at its core, Humanity and creation itself are good. That's what God said when he looked upon all that he made, including humans, who are the apex of creation, and said it was very good. Now, the Bible depicts creation as good and as damaged, but under the promise of transformation. It is primarily in its essence good, and it will be returned to good. But we have a problem. You and I, 
we tend to think the opposite of that. We tend to think of humanity and the world as mostly, if not exclusively, bad and broken and worthy of destruction, not as good and damaged and in process of transformation. I think we've often in our tradition lost a category for the good, the kind of stuff Paul's talking about in the pastoral epistles. In fact, some Christian traditions, including ours, we put a lot of emphasis on humanity's sinfulness and the world's brokenness and opposition to God, and that's true. We are sinful and we are broken and the world is in opposition to God. That's true and important, but it's not the primary thing. It's not the core message of what the Bible says. From the beginning, the message is that all that God made is beautiful and good. But instead, we tend to think of the garden and in the, in the world, not as a garden, but as garbage. Broken, distorted, perverted, bent, yes, but those are deviations. Those are derivations of what the true nature of humanity in the world is. The fundamental beauty and goodness of the world is the primary truth, and it's so true of humanity and the world that even in the midst of all the brokenness and evil and, and sin of the world, we still see goodness break through, don't we? It's like this gold idol that is covered with mud, but its rays are, are, are going forth. We see it in creation. We see it in soccer. We see it in relationships. We see even bad people can do good things at a moment. That is what we call common grace, that because of the very nature of how God has made his world, it is fundamentally good. Another way we could think about this is how we think about the story of the Bible. A lot of times, maybe you haven't heard this before, but it's a really helpful way to think about the story of the Bible in four points, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. That's a really helpful basic way to understand the story of Genesis all the way to Revelation, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. But if you and I think about our, how you and I tend to read the Bible, we a lot of times only focus on and think about the middle part of that story, the fall and the redemption part. Humanity's sinfulness and rebellion can be forgiven through Jesus entering into the world. That's the fall can be forgiven through the redemption. And that's beautiful and that's good. And we, we don't need less of that. We need more of that. We need to keep that clear in our hearts and minds. But when you and I think about the whole story of the Bible, we need to recognize that we're actually only reading chapters two and three when we think of it that way of, of the four chapter story. It'd be like if you walked into a two hour movie and you walked in 30 minutes late and then left 30 minutes before it ended, which is usually what happens to me because I fall asleep watching everything, but I'll, I'll, I'll miss big parts of it. So whether it's you know Toy Story or Up or Inside Out, whatever movie you want, imagine if you came in 30 minutes in and left 30 minutes before it left. You'd, you'd have a sense of, partly what's going on in the characters, but you'd miss the fundamental idea and you'd miss how the story ends. And so too, when you and I read the Bible, we tend to only focus on the fall and the redemption part and we forget the creation part, which where God says, this is good. And we forget the new creation part where he redeems everything and makes it good again. Here's how Paul describes that trajectory in Romans chapter eight. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory, the goodness, the beauty that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, 
not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory, and we see the word glory, you should think the word beauty, glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation, that includes you and me, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This is the vision of the Bible, that what God created was good, it was broken, but it is going to be restored. Now with that background, let's look at our text in Titus. Let's look at verse eight again. Paul says, to conclude this letter, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then look at verse 14, just going down a few verses. Right before, as he closes the letter, he says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. So God is good, creation is good, and humans are called to do good in the world as central to our role. But here's the question. How in the world, how do you keep that in your mind, this call to goodness and grace? How does that relate to again, our sinfulness and especially God's grace. Is, is the idea of God being gracious to us and us doing good, how do you put those things together in your mind? Have you wrestled with that? Are these opposite of each other? Doing good? A lot of times we might think doing good sounds like the opposite of God's grace. You see, when we put, again, the emphasis only on the middle part of the story of the fall redemption, then we primarily think of ourselves as just bad, and then we can't figure out how we, what it means to do good because good sounds like the opposite of who we are, and, and it's the opposite of grace, it might sound like to us. Or when we only think of the message of the Bible in kind of spiritual terms, not in physical terms, we may, may have trouble understanding what in the world doing good would have to do with being a Christian. But let me point us back to the verses right before verse 8, the ones that Pastor Kevin spoke on last, spoke on last week, and, and run up to verse 8. Look back at Titus 3, beginning of verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, lots of bad. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And he saved us, how? Through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, the ones who understand, and that what, three to seven is their experience, those who trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. 
These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So here it is, friends. Here it is so beautifully said. We don't get God because of our goodness, but having gotten God, we do good in the world. We are cleansed. We are refilled. We are refueled. We are transformed by God's goodness. And as a result, we then do good in the world. Those who trust in God, another way of saying have faith in God and therefore unite with Christ, are now enabled by the Spirit to actually do good, not as earning God's favor, but as a consequence of his favor set upon us. Because our God is good, we seek to do good. Because God has been good to us, we do good in the world. It's really the same thing Paul says in a more famous place in Ephesians chapter two. Let me read for you Ephesians two. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's workmanship or handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. (laughs) So there it is. But I'm afraid we often only read and and think about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the first two parts of that, and we forget verse 10, that the reason God redeems us out of his grace and kindness is so that we might do good. What is the purpose of God saving us and making us born again so that we might do good even as he does in the world? And that is beautiful and wonderful. God's goodness enables us to be and do good towards others. I I think of also what Paul says in his most radical letter about grace. How does he end it in in Galatians 6? He says, therefore, after all the light of the grace of God, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So I'd sum it up this way, friends. We don't do good works to get to God but we do good works because God got us. (laughs) Let that sink in. We we, We can't get this wrong. We don't do good works to get to God, but because God has rescued us and grabbed us and made us born again, we actually do good in the world. And friends, if you can get a hold of this full story, this full picture, it will transform your life. Christian man or woman today, teenager, elderly, whatever Enneagram number you are, whatever it is, it is possible for you to do good, to do and be a beautiful person who loves and serves and blesses others, who builds beautiful things, who learns by the power of the Spirit to be kind and generous and patient and loving and self-controlled and humble and self-sacrificing, All these things that even though we can't always articulate why, when we see them, we know they are beautiful and they are good. And that's why Paul concludes his letter to Titus with this invitation to goodness, because the gospel is what empowers us to do that. And much more briefly, though, he has to also address the opposite of goodness, because Paul's a realist and he knows you and me. He says in verses nine to 11, this is the mark of someone who doesn't, isn't someone who's listening to the invitation of good. He says in verse nine, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. The opposite of good Warned a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. 
Now, earlier in this letter, Paul has already addressed contentious people. He does it in other letters too. This is a common problem among humans, right? Including religious humans being quarrely and content, quarrel, uh, quarrelsome and contentious and argumentative and divisive. And the irony is that people that are that way, maybe some of you today, people that are that way are always convinced that they're right in their own minds. <laughs> and here's what you need to hear from the Bible, from Jesus and the apostles' teaching is that even no matter what you think the content of your rightness or wrongness of what you're doing, if you're showing up as quarrelsome, divisive, and fighting and argumentative, it does not matter you are in the wrong. That's what the Bible is really clear about. It doesn't matter how conservative or how liberal or whatever your view is, if that's how you're showing up in life, you can guarantee you're warped. Because it is not the opposite. It is the opposite of being good. And so Paul's instructions are very clear. He's basing this on Matthew chapter 18, that in the church, we need to be aware of quarrelsome and divisive people and not give them a voice. Broken people, limping people, hurt people, wounded people, humble people, recovering people are all welcome in the church. Divisive, contentious, quarrelsome people are not. Because it's the opposite of doing good. It's the opposite of what happens when the gospel transforms you. Is this you today, friend? Are you the kind of person that is always critical, quarreling, eager to fight rather than eager to do good? Maybe that's what you learned from your father or mother. I, I understand it can be very difficult. There is power to be transformed, because that's the opposite of what it means to be good. And that leads us to our third and final point, the practice of goodness. We've seen an invitation to goodness, one key example of the opposite of goodness. Now, what does it really look like to practice this? Well, let me read verse 8 one more time. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. I'm trying to stress it this morning, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves. I love that. Careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then jump down again to verse 12. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Now, one of the great and kind of weird things about teaching and preaching from the Bible is that this is a letter and you see that the Bible's not contained, doesn't just full of these sort of abstract philosophical highbrow ideas. It's real people in personal relationships that are talking with each other. This, we see here four people, four brothers in Christ of the Apostle Paul that, that he knew and loved and worked with and that he, he calls out by name because these are friends. This would be like Pastor Kevin and Mo and Brian and Lindsay and Scott and the people I work with every week here. These are fellow workers for the gospel and I love them and Paul loves them as well. Artemis and Tychicus, we know these are people that had journeyed with Paul and, and carried some of his other letters. 
Apollos, we have seen him in connection with Corinth and the Corinthian correspondence. This is the only time in the New Testament we meet this guy called Zenus the lawyer. And I just think that is the most awesome lawyer name. This, wouldn't this have been great advertisements in Athens or Rome's? Have you been injured in a chariot accident? Call Zenus, who will bring down the power of Zeus himself to win your case, right? We don't know who Zenus was exactly. Maybe he was Paul's legal counsel when he was in trouble with the Roman Empire. We don't know, but what's so beautiful to observe, especially with Apollos and Zenos, those are men who had the names of Greek gods. <laughs> Apollos and Zeus, Zenos means gift of Zeus. Apollos and Zenos, men whose names represent Greek gods, are now serving the true and living God, the God of Israel. Now, why are these real people mentioned here? Because doing good isn't in the abstract, it's real and concrete. Zenos and Apollos are likely the ones who brought, they're the ones who carried this letter to Titus, and they're stopping there on the way to some mission, maybe that Paul sent them on, and the church needed to provide for them for their hospitality and their help. There's no credit cards, there's no prepaid flights. They need the real help of other Christians to fulfill their mission. You see, the practice of doing good looks like serving and meeting the needs of real people, whomever God has put in our lives. Whoever's, whoever's path intersects with ours are the people we're called to do good for. And again, I love verse 14, learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs. What does this look like? I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, this devoting to doing good does not just look like one-off moments, but a life of service. Everyone wants to serve at the soup kitchen on Christmas, but what about in May or in October or in January? One of the main ways Christians' lives are described in the New Testament is as servants or even slaves. That's a primary metaphor to describe Christians because as Jesus himself says and, and models, even Jesus, who is worthy of all honor, did not come to be served, but to serve, to pour out his life for others. So being devoted to doing good in the world means giving it means more than giving a little money or time so that you can check off the don't want to feel guilty checklist, but it means a life of service. It means learning a new attitude. It means learning new posture and habits. And yes, it's going to feel uncomfortable and it's going to hurt, but like a diet, like I'm, I've just cut out gluten, eating primarily high fat, low carb, I'm feeling great. Just like a diet, you make some small changes and you stick with it, including when they feel the pinch of it. And sometimes you have a double chocolate cake on Mother's Day when everybody else is. That happens, right? But you, it's not perfect, but for the sake of the vision of a better life, you make steps towards it. So maybe for you, let's think financially. Maybe you don't give anything. You're a member, but you don't give anything towards the church. Maybe, maybe you give 0%. Maybe just start with 1%. Start with 2%. Maybe you give 10%, but you have means and you can give more. Give a little bit more to feel the pinch of living a life of service. But if you've been around Sojourn, and I hope this is true for most churches, 
I'd want to say money is the least important thing you can do in doing good. In fact, money is a very easy way to not really be a servant, just to give money and not be involved. The most important thing you can do in doing good in the world, being a servant of Christ and others, is giving of your time and your very self. Here at East, we are very blessed. If we needed to raise $10,000 for something, we could do it by one o'clock today, I guarantee you. But if we need 10 volunteers for something, we'd be pulling teeth for a little while. That should not be. That should not be. In fact, brothers and sisters, I'll challenge you. When, if you look at the number of people that are serving and sojourn kids and other things, most of them are newer members. That should not be. That should not be. We should be inculcating and model in our lives a life of servants and VBS and S2 and Sojourn Kids and Wendy's Hill Workdays as greeters. This is what it means to do good in the world, to be a follower of Christ, is that you engage in a life of service. And the beauty and joy of God's invitation to goodness is that you don't have to be super gifted. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a great public speaker. You don't have to be free from flaws to, to serve. Anyone at any stage can show up and be engaged in the good works God has prepared for you beforehand. Maybe you are a 10 to 15 year old today. You can't even drive. <laughs> you can't even get yourself someplace. Maybe you wonder how you could do good. Maybe you're a single mom who is working three jobs and you're lonely and tired. Maybe you're someone who's suffering from a physical or mental illness and you feel like all you can do is just survive. Wherever you are today, that is okay. Being good and doing good in response to God's goodness is not for the superheroes. It's not for the ones who have it all together. It's not for the ones who can write big checks and do grandiose things. Being and doing good in response to goodness could be as simple as listening to another person with kindness, loving someone else in your orbit. I love how the theologian Joseph Pieper, not Piper, Joseph Pieper describes it. To love someone is to turn to them and say, it is good that you exist. Can you do that? Can you relate to someone in such a way that you're communicating, it is good that you exist? And this goodness of another human is not based on what they've done or their performance, but just by the fact that they are created in God's image. So to tie all this together as we wrap up our series on Titus, let me invite you to boldly step into some new habits and new ways of being in the world that are rooted in the goodness of creation itself, in God himself, and in Jesus himself, who came not to be served, but to serve. Paul was saying to Titus, and God is saying to you this morning, the same message, because God is good and has done us good, we can boldly and lovingly do good and, do, and be good in the world. This is what it means to be a beautiful church. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.